Welcome to the September 2013 episode of Behind the DM Screen. Three DMs helping each other out and talking about their games. Who's doing the timing this time? I don't know. My, my iPhone's upstairs. So. Oh, I got mine. That means if I want more time, I can pause it and give myself more time. I win. And especially I guess, because I... guess I, that's true. Means I get, and, I, and I get to go first today. Man, go go nuts. Take that. That's totalitarian empire have I fallen into. Right. Suck on that. So, <laughs> my game. Um, I think I have only played once since we last chatted. Um, between Gen Con and, and we've rescheduled this recording a couple of times and, and all that stuff going on. Um, I think I've only played once. I think last time we talked, they had recovered the Temple of Moradin. Hmm. That um, sounds right. And inside the, you know, that was never discovered by the, the Temple of Elemental Evil inside of their, you know, tunnels and what have you. And they've brought the uh, the dwarves back there to help reestablish things. And they were about to go into the Air Temple. Uh, in the last session, they went into the Air Temple. They defeated the, um, the you know, the, the high priest of the Air Temple. Um, while they were in the middle of that fight, the second in command sort of came out into the, and, and to either join in the fight or um, he made the, he actually made them an offer of hey uh, help me kill this guy put me in charge I'll let you you know move through the air temple grounds at your leisure uh, and I'd be happy to aim you in the direction of the fire temple my main rivals um, and so you know the two air temple leaders sort of betrayed each other and and big fights pr- proceeded and the party's like oh yeah sure we'll totally take that deal killed the high priest and then killed the second in command. So that way they could, you know, focus fire one at a time. Uh, and then the halfling of my party, uh, I don't remember, know if you remember way back in the moat house, there was this whole thing with the cursed black fruit, which was a blessing of Therizdun. Mm. And three of my players accepted this blessing, which gave them a permanent stat boost. Um, but, and, 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 by and large, had nothing else really going on, but I decided that it would set them up to possibly become a chosen of Therizdun um, because of the chaos they would wreak and, what, or, and whatever. So there's this whole chosen um, of Therizdun beeline going on, but they don't know that's what they're becoming. Um, and so one of them, um, you know, um, claims mastery over the Air Temple and receives an additional blessing from Therizdun, which also puts him further along the track of becoming the chosen. Hmm. And so that's that's a, a storyline I've sort of um, snuck into the into the whole thing as well. Um, I've got you know one guy who's secretly working for was it Mephistopheles, and I've got one guy who's working for Moradin, and so we're de- dealing with you know cosmic forces at play here. But my pri- uh, priest of Moradin decided that we can't have this evil, desecrated, unholy um, t- uh, altar of the elemental air. Uh, evil elemental air in the middle of these dwarven mines, and so he had to destroy that, unleashing all kinds of elemental energy and bringing, you know, giant stones falling from the the ceiling and what have you. They then went on and explored a little bit more, um, which was all somewhat mundane and not too consequential at this point. But I decided after the session to make things interesting in terms of the story that I'm going to have a side effect of destroying that altar also include a time jump. Uh-oh. And I thought that could be an interesting uh, twist uh, of the story because, hey, now we're a month later. And, okay. you, and you get to actually see some of the consequences. Because otherwise, so much of the adventure is happening. Like, 
I've been doing the, the, the newsletter, right? And I put a date on the newsletter every time we do it. I think we've done so far this the entire adventure in less than a month. Yeah. So it's hard to see the long-term consequences um, of, of these possible you know, earth-shattering events in such a short period of time. And so I thought I could do some more interesting things if, if there were larger periods of time. And so I just said, hey, let's say that the energy unleashed from destroying the altar also created a time jump. And I can do that with all the other altars if they, if they destroy those as well, that each one of them comes with a time jump of a certain period of time. Mm. So you're jumping forward or back? <clears throat> so jumping forward. Okay. <clears throat> so the small encampment of, of dwarves that had escaped Hammerfast and, and were camping around Duraster to support taking back the, the mines have now turned into a sort of dwarven ghetto. You know, mm. they've actually built up their own little stone shacks and, and what have you to live in. Um, and, I, you know, I've, and I'm sort of uh, – there's a, a B-plot sort of back in town that they never really deal with that uh, has to do with um, one of the, the cults agents getting everybody hooked on on drugs uh on this uh, and so i'm i'm playing starting to progress that storyline a little bit more and, and give some hints as to that to that going on but it also means that i took you know they only cleared out half the air temple so i'm like well there's still like an upper level guy that w- was left alive he's not a cleric so he's not never going to be the high priest but he can certainly try to take control of the temple since there's nobody else there there's a power vacuum mm-hmm. right. and, and so i'm i'm kind of taking him and Playing him up a little bit, I'm going to boost him a little bit. I, I've sort of uh, in, in the newsletter, I sort of talked about how there's a he's he's gathered together a team of, of hunters to find the the PCs that destroyed the the altar and, and seek revenge because this is a way of him trying to solidify his power. Um, recognizing, of course, after a day or two of looking that the PCs probably aren't around anymore. They must have been destroyed when the temple, you know, the energies of, of the altar were unleashed because it's been a month and they haven't been around, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know now they're going to be back, and this guy's already got this this team of hunters, you know, that he's gathered up, um, that he was getting ready to use against the fire temple too, because he needs something to do to to establish his superiority and, and his so authority. Are each of these altars elemental? Yes. Uh, one of the things that I always like doing with time travel, I always I always liked the idea that traveling into other worlds and other dimensions meant that time could shift considerably mm-hmm. between them. So what if they spent, like, which altar did they destroy? Air. So what if they spent, like, five or six minutes in the elemental plane of air? Maybe have one specific little scene in the elemental plane of air. And then when they come back, it's been a month. And, and that's what I will, will probably do something similar in the future. In this case, I'm actually kind of retconning a little bit, but I'm doing it in such a way that they don't notice. Hmm. Because they destroyed the altar... And then they continued exploring and wiping out forces of the air temple. Oh, okay, but they right. haven't come out yet. So, so what I'm going to say is, well, you actually had the, the time jump. Right. And then you continued exploring. You just didn't realize that you time jumped. Yeah. You know? yeah. And everybody else was very confused, and there wasn't a lot of uh, big story that happened after that. So I think I, think I can make it work. Would there be a way to have almost like a, a retconny flashback? Maybe they forgot the fact that they were in the plane of air for a couple minutes? I could, but I think... I think making the retcon too, that too that extreme. that yeah. visible, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think if I just do the retcon without telling them, they'll never notice. They'll mm-hmm. just assume it happened and they did, and they missed it. They didn't they didn't pick up on the clues. You know, mm-hmm. if I tell right. them I'm retconning, then I think it, it take, it's going to take them out of the story a little bit. Right. So you could you could feed little hints beyond beyond the thing. Like they could start having little dream sequences. 
of of their know? time in the air and the elements. Maybe, maybe like they they have a full rest, right? Mm-hmm. Like if they have a full rest, and you know whoever the most arcane of them has this dream of you know pillars floating in you know floating in the air and Jin Jin flying around mm. and you know big blue dragons soaring through the air, and then they wake up and like, what the hell was that? Mm-hmm. You know, and they don't know what that was, but then later they find out, oh my god, we were actually in the plane of air for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll, 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 and that, and you know, it's a hint. Like it's not saying you were in the plane of air and now a month has passed. Like they'll 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 have to kind of piece together what happened, what happened, and maybe their minds just couldn't quite grasp it. Like they're they're you know when they when they went and came back, their brains just said, oh, we're just going to pretend like that didn't happen because right. I don't know what the hell to do with that. And and then once they've dealt with that, it it would make sense for them to be cognizant of it when they did the same thing with yeah. With it starts to, right the little images of what had happened to them while they were there, and it wouldn't be much. You know, my idea is like if you think of the if you have the 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 the, the great wheel, mm-hmm. imagine that the the wheel is spinning. Each of the layers of the wheel is spinning. That means that the inside wheel is spinning faster than the outside wheel, mm-hmm. and so that you know time in the elemental planes, which is the furthest, isn't that the furthest wheel? No, the, no, it's the nearest. El- the elemental the, the elemental planes aren't aren't connected to the great wheel. Uh, yeah. The elemental planes are not. Con- I thought they were the outer. No, the the great wheel was only the outer planes, and the inner planes that. are the 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 elemental, and they're only connected through the prime material. Gotcha. Okay, so you know the idea would be that time. But time is wonky. Anytime you yeah, you, time is wonky. So, anytime you go yeah. there, sometimes you could go in and you could come out, and you could be a hundred years in hell, and then come out, and it's only been a day. Yeah. Other times you right. could go for ten minutes, and you come back, and it's been ten years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna see see if I can't play with that a little bit. So, yeah, so that's what's going on. I was supposed to have a session today, as, as I told you before the recording. Um, it was just canceled like 30 minutes ago, so we're not going to play today, but we are, we're up for it next weekend, I think. So um, we'll, we'll progress forward with that. So that and that kind of works out okay because I wasn't super prepared for today, and now I, now I have time because I've been busy reading uh, Murder in Baldur's Gate, mm. which actually goes back to one of my other issues is that we're, we're about halfway through this campaign, and I already have like – four or five different ideas for the next campaign in my head now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's always a good place to be at. It is, but now it's like, well, I don't know which one I want to do, and some of them i got to learn new systems, and so I need to start reading things or whatever, um, you know, because I'd like to start prepping for it a little bit now. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, I, I'm not, I don't want to start pitching my players the next campaign when we're only halfway through this campaign. Um, so, yeah, I'm just having a hard time narrowing things down in my head here. And sure. some, of, some of them are short-term, right? Uh, I've talked about... Going back to my um, fourth edition one to thirty campaign, where most of the players ended up becoming or PCs ended up becoming gods in the Forgotten Realms by the end of it, or exarchs or whatever. Right. And, and so we talked about, and I talked to Mike a little bit about this through email. Was it last week? Uh, about using Fate Core to run that game, right? And that could be just a one or two shot game. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm, I'm going to do some funky time travely sort of things with that too, where because I always had this idea in my head that. Um, that they were going to become gods and they were going to do some things as gods that would help set, set themselves up to become gods, you know, creating this time loop. That they were going mm-hmm. send, to send an agent back through time that helps put them on the path to, to where they ended up going. So I th- think it might be fun to try to craft some sort of adventure wherein we do that, some sort of fate core game, one mm-hmm. shot or so, where they end up doing the bit where they send somebody back in time to put them on the path to become what they already are. Right. right. So I've got that one, which I think is a one or two shot. I've got... Um, I. I as, as I'm reading Murder in Baldur's Gate, getting ready for a review of that next week, I'm really liking a lot of that, and I'd like to give that a shot sometime. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But then I've also talked to my players for months now about doing uh, Eyes of the Lich Queen and going back and doing another fourth edition game. Wow. Um, you know, because a lot of them still have. What uh, Eyes of the Lich Queen is actually a third edition camp um, uh, adventure, which I would then convert to fourth, uh, so they can get some use out of the character builder that they're still subscribed to and whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, before next is completely out, uh, and I've had this this kind of uh, Eberron post apocalyptic Warforge centered concept uh, campaign building up in my head as well, based around the song "Radioactive" by Imagine Dragons. <laughs> Which I think the, every time I hear the song, it's like, oh, that's, this campaign would be totally cool, <laughs> you know? So I've got all these ideas for campaigns, and, and I'm not actually in a position where I should be focusing on any of these campaigns. Hmm. But that's what I've got going on. Great. All right. Are we good on me? Sounds like you got a handle on it, man. I'm, I'm going to finish two and a half minutes early. Wow. Well, that'll be fine because we have a listener email to talk about at the end, and this gives a chance to talk about our sponsor, Noble Knight Games. Uh, Noble Knight is an online game store that also has a local game store, um, and they specialize in finding out-of-print games as well as the new stuff, and our pick for the episode is one of the systems that I'm thinking of running, which is Fate Core, and which Mike has been doing a lot of work with. So, Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit about Fate Core? Oh, boy. Um... God, how to describe Fate Core? So Fate Core is a I, I would I would say it's more of a story focused game, but you don't want to get the impression that it doesn't have a lot of rich mechanics to it. Instead of having a real structured system for a race and class, it focuses on an idea of a- character aspects, things about your character that can be invoked and compelled in order to complete various actions. Uh, Fate Core has a pretty robust skill system in it that's reminiscent of of a D and D like skill system. And um, it's a generic RPG, so you can apply many different game worlds as wacky as you want. It's intended for players to sit down and just say, hey, let's all play in Blade Runner. And then, you know, have the ability to play in Blade Runner. Um, you mentioned running it for like a 30th level, you know, as, as a 30th level D&D sort of campaign. Yeah. And you can do exactly that by saying, like, what are the key aspects of your character that define them as this 30th level thing? And you would say, like, you know, the best archer in the universe and, you know never misses a shot and you'd have all of these different kind of aspects that would kind of define that character and would make them feel like a 30th level fourth edition character in the same system that could be a detective in Chinatown. Yep. Um, it's an excellent, very well refined system. It's based on the, the, the fate system, um, which I, I think was a creation of Rob Donahue and Fred Hicks uh, has been around for about six years or so. And it's a refinement of that, so it's been around for a while. A lot of different game systems have used it, and they really have refined it down to a an excellent set, and it's a great system. I think we and, actually looked it up yeah. in, in a recent news desk because uh, we were having a discussion a discussion about it. Randy, do you remember that? Uh, we were talking about, no, or maybe it was but, one of these one of these episodes. <laughs> but in any case, I remember looking it up, and I think it's I think the original Fate is like ten years old at this point. Yeah, right. It's been around for a while. I think I think yeah. if I recall, it was. Fred and Fred and Rob were in a car ride to Gen Con and invented it in a car ride to Gen Con. Oh. Um, and one of the, one of the interesting, so one of the one of the most notable things is that the dice it uses is, is a strange set of dice. It's six sided dice with two sides blank, two sides with pluses, and two sides with minuses. And right. you roll four of them together and add the pluses and minuses together. So the average is zero. You're most likely to roll a zero, uh, and then that way the skill ladder. The ladder of difficulties and the skill points are actually equal, rather than skills being under, you know, under the ladder. 
Mm-hmm. This probably doesn't make too much sense, but it's it's fun if you don't mind rolling negatives a lot of time. It's 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 a really fun system. Mm-hmm. And, well, I've been, and it's all balanced against what the DM is assigned. It's all balanced against the DM is assigned anyway. But it's it's hard right. to get like when you're when you're normally rolling a score of thirty seven, it gets kind of you know odd to say like, well, I rolled a minus two. Right. Um, I've been writing a system for it, which has also been a lot, or like a little game scenario for it, and I've ha- been having a lot of fun. It's it's such a flexible system, yeah. and still has a lot of fun, juicy bits to it. And I've run it a few times now, and I really like it. Yeah, I enjoyed the game that we played at Gen Con with your with your yeah, Fate yeah. Four game. Yeah, cool. Wave. All right, well, and, people, I've, and I've played the accelerated version, which is kind of like a uh, uh, stripped down version of Fate Core, from what I understand, and. Um, and it's a blast. It works. I mean, most of the main mechanics are the same and pretty free form, but um, there's still enough there that it's it's a compelling game. I had a blast. Yeah, the impression I get is that Fate Core, the, the Fate Core book, the big one, is the one that you read to learn the game. Right. And Fate Core Accelerated is the book that you bring to the table to reference because it's basically the same system. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's sort there's, of. I mean, there's yeah. differences. The main is difference there? is, yeah, in Fate Accelerated, you have. Um, what are they called, Randall? Um, the, it's yeah. like the, they have a, they have attributes instead of skills, but I, I forget what they call right. Them. Yeah, the, uh, I think uh, attributes is the right word. It's not yeah. it's not attributes. It's something else because it's is the it way you, approaches. They're called approaches. Oh, approaches. And okay. There's like yeah, I think yeah. there's five or six approaches, and they are along the line. It's like quickly, sneakily, clever, careful. Yeah, that's you know, right. They were and, very and, generic, but yeah, they they're were, very yeah. generic, and that way you you they they can be the same for any game world you're in. So if you're in a cyberpunk game or a science fiction game or a fantasy game, you still are being either careful or clever or flashy or right, you know, whatever. So it's very it's good. yeah. So they they replaced the skill system with that in accelerated, but yeah, much of the rest of accelerated is well. That that is way more of a review that we normally give to a noble knight pick. So it must be something that these guys are very interested and excited about. So check it out over at noblenight.com. Noble Knight is a long-standing game store specializing in finding out-of-print games while also offering the newest great releases. Including D&D? They got it from any edition. That's right, all of them. What if I want a board game? Card game, minis, or dice? Noble Knight has it all and at a discounted price. In fact, Noble Knight has over 30,000 unique items on stock. And you know you can trust this Better Business Bureau accredited store with a satisfaction guarantee. Yeah, but I've bought too many things over the years. How can I justify spending even more? Good thing we're talking about Noble Knight, then. They'll buy your old gaming things and offer you cash or trade, so you'll be able to keep up with all the great gaming stuff you want. Check them out at noblenight.com. Wow, I'll go today. And be sure to tell them the Tome Show sent you. And we're back, and my notes say that it is Randall's turn. Okay. Well, this won't take too long. Um, I did get a chance to play uh, right after, or actually right before Gen Con. Uh, we actually moved my game day. Uh, my other DM said that was fine, and so we moved our game day up a week, and um, they are still in uh, the dungeon at um, at the Moat House near the village of Hamlet. Um, not a whole lot of really what I'd call, I don't know, story-worthy things happening there. They're cutting their way through the dungeon. They defeated some zombies. Uh, uh, they quickly defeated an ogre. Um, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But for the most part, that's really all that happened. Um, we actually had a fairly short game, but yet we got two combats in and didn't sweat it. We're playing D&D next. 
um, we are using the June rules. <laughs> I guess you almost have to date date which use which version of the uh, pretest rules uh, or the game test rules you're using. Um, we will probably upgrade since I've got the uh, book at Gen Con, the um, uh, Dragon Spear Castle, right? Isn't that what it's called? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, Ghosts of Dragon Spear Castle. Ghosts of Dragon Spear Castle. We'll probably upgrade to whatever the rules are in that version. But um, beyond that, we're not changing anything until the actual game comes out. Um, I was a little, <coughs> pardon me, I was a little um, disappointed with how quickly they took down the ogre. There's six of them. Um, and I think really some of the monsters are a little underpowered. Yeah. I, and I, I, think, I, that's, I think that's pretty commonly known. Yeah. yeah, and it probably is. And I'm probably saying something that people do know already. Have I uh, mentioned the story about when my fourth level characters took down a 14th level dragon in two rounds? Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> so. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was like two rounds again with the ogres. It ogre there and they're like first level still, and and took it down in two rounds. I think the ogre got one shot. Now the one shot he did do, he did a lot of damage to that sure. one character and and almost took him out of the game. But the rest of them like totally overpowered him and it was all over. So, um, but as the story progresses, remember that I've given each of the players an incentive, and they're supposed to find a particular item within the dungeon and these are items that are already in the dungeon i did not place them um just uh off the top of my head i didn't add anything to the module these are items that exist already in the module and so they've got to find these and these are linked to various story elements of each player so um one of the characters uh found uh one of his uh items which is the iron gnome friendship ring if um anyone familiar with the album album (laughs) the module um uh, we'll remember um, you rescue some gnomes from the uh, ogre, and uh, the gnomes give them you an iron ring and friends forever, best friends forever. So, Iron Gnome Friendship Ring is is my favorite track on that album. That's right, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's really uh, that's really all that's going on. Um, we play uh, tomorrow, actually. So yeah, we have all this weird this weird uh, timing stuff going on because we're recording on a Sunday instead of our normal Thursday or a Saturday instead of our normal Thursdays. Yeah, it's kind of weird. So, uh, so I expect everyone, um, yeah, the as far as I know, everyone will be here. That's supposed to be here tomorrow. So, should be a good game. Uh, they'll continue. It'll be a little tougher this time. They're going to be getting into the area where uh, the knolls are and the bugbears, and those I think will be tougher fights uh, because there's more foes. The armor classes are a little higher. I mean, zombie armor class wasn't that high. It's easy to hit that. Um, and the ogres really wasn't very high. Now, so now they're in the, to hit him. They're in the moat house? They are in the dungeon below the moat house. In, okay, yes. so they've cleared out the top level of the moat house. Yes. And now yes. they're in the part below, which is the part I'm more familiar with because that's the part that hasn't changed in return. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the layout hasn't changed. I imagine the, the creatures inside have. Sure. Is there a well at some point in that, in that, that moat house? There is. Um, it's where a giant uh, crayfish is. Okay. So, uh, so yeah. Um, that oh. should be an interesting... I'm hoping that'll be an interesting fight. That well uh, features prominently in, in Return um, because it turns out that the bottom of the well is actually false. Oh, that's interesting. And with, and with a, a stone shape, you can pull the, the edges in and the, the, the plug at the bottom falls out and underneath there is a giant black stone spire that is a... Uh, and it's sort of this impossible architecture thing that is a, a prime, primal uh, holy site for Thara's done. 
Oh yeah, see, this is a primary example of of, of a thing I call a um, a, a Gygax glitch, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's one of those things that is so obscure that no one would ever think about doing that. Mm-hmm. No one stands around the well suddenly thinks, "I need stone shape." Why do you need stone shape? Well, you know, yeah, the bottom of the well should just be stone shape. <laughs> and I don't and know. It's like, I don't know that the original has that in it. No, but. The, my point, but there's a lot of stuff in that, and there's a lot of stuff. That's one of the reasons Tomb of Horrors is so freaking right. deadly, is because no one would ever think of that. No, right. it's just not a thing there that preci- you come there up with. There's precisely one way to get past this obstacle, and it's this one specific spell. Right. And if you don't happen yeah. to have it and know that that's what you need there, and there's no right. reason that you should know that that's what you need there, yeah. then, then you can't get past. Yeah, and right. and I and I get that the presumption, and I think this is what you know, I think this is what Gygax had in mind when he comes up with some of these things, is that the presumption is that players, well, ahead of time, there's a reason there were like a dozen different types of spells that were for um, uh, like augury and, um, you know, premonition type stuff, so that you can predict what's going to happen. There's a bunch of those spells, and I think the assumption is that characters will automatically go to those types of spells, ask questions, and get answers as to things to that do. they might have to do in the dungeon. Sure. No one thinks about doing that these days. And a lot of those spells don't even exist anymore. But it's just, you know, as far as in current game systems and things. So, you know, it, but that's why I call him a Gygax glitch, is, which is just a yeah. alliteration. Now, but it, now it, yeah. uh, the, the return that I'm running is uh, a Monty Cook design. And and so, you know, yes, there's a giant plug in the bottom of the well that nobody would ever think to get rid of, except that the cult has already opened it. Right. Uh, and so while they've sealed it back up, all the clues from when they did it are still around. You know, there's right. there's, and, a, there's a pulley yeah. system and there's a scroll of stone shape in the room before that. And so you can kind of put the clues together and figure out. Right. Hmm. So but anyway, that's basically what's going on in mine. Um, uh, I imagine they'll get. I don't think they'll get to the big fight with um, Lareth, uh, but I imagine they'll get pretty close. Pretty close, yeah. So, yeah. Because I, if, if I'm remembering the dungeon in the Moat House, it, um, it's not that expansive. Oh, it's not. It's and, not very big at all. And I think um, I think the version in Return is actually a little bit bigger because they've added some to it. Yeah, I think the only battle that will actually give them the most trouble uh, until the end, just because of the overwhelming number of highly armored foes, um, is the ghouls. Because mm-hmm. they each get three attacks. There's four of them, I think, and um, there may be two. I'm trying to remember. But anyway, they you know they have multiple attacks. Uh, anytime you have, and even one attack can paralyze. So that's going to be a that'll probably be one of their most dangerous encounters. Sure. Um, ghouls, despite the underpoweredness of some of the monsters in D and D Next, ghouls are dangerous. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, they brought them back. They're dangerous, and so we'll see how that goes. But. So it sounds like you've only got like one or two more sessions in this in this campaign. Hopefully, I'd like to be done by the end of the year, since we only play once a month and it's okay. getting tough. You know, as we as November game is probably going to be okay. Um, it's always dicey as to whether we'll have a game in December. Yeah, sure. so um, it'll be hard to say. But uh, maybe we'll but, move. But that on. said, while I'm sitting here thinking about a dozen different next campaign ideas. You're probably more in the position to be thinking about that. Have you thought about what you're going to do next? Oh, yeah. Um, I'll probably do the U series is what I'm thinking about doing. Okay. Um, Still in next or go back to and do some, no, no, some no. old No, no, no. I'm going to stay in next there. Um, I am starting to explore uh, Numenera. I got that book. Um, I, I'm loving it. 
Uh, I love the rule system. Uh, I actually like the resting system and the healing system in Numenera. Might try to adapt that to D&D next. Okay. Um, hmm. I'll compare the two and see. But I like the idea of having um, these heal checks that are spread out over a period of time. Like you can do one almost immediately. Then you can do one in maybe a half hour. And then you can do one in like that day and then it's like a month check or something like that i can't remember but they they spread out in such a way that it's not everyone's not always healthy all the time necessarily so i i, I gotta play with that idea i just like i, I just kind of liked it kind of clicked so is, um, a, is it also a less deadly system in terms of you you get hit less often yeah i don't it, know about it takes that so long so much longer to heal um the scales are reduced as far as the number of points okay but I think there's still, you know, you might have a pool of, well, let me take it back because there's, you do have approximately, if you had a 10, the average is 10 for a pool score and you have three attributes that you use. And as you use those up, um, you get more and more progressed along a damage track. So let's say you have 10 in each point. That's a, a pool of 30. And a monster hits for four each round. Well, that's going to take your might pool down to zero pretty quick. And that's when you're like debilitated or something like that. And then you, you can go to the other pool and get it reduced. And then you're like down to crawling. And, the, you know, something like that. But I, I don't have the book in front of me or I could be more specific about sure. that thing. Um, and I, again, I have, I'm just now starting to get into the book. So I don't have... Uh, all the knowledge at the top of my head. But it's interesting enough for me that I kind of want to run a game of it at Gen Con next year. Okay. So for, uh, those, for those of you, people who don't know, can you tell us a little bit about oh, the, yeah. pre- the premise of what Numenera is? Yeah, Numenera takes place... It was written by um, uh, Monty Cook, uh, who also did the Tolis book, um, which is very popular. But um, Numenera itself is a campaign... It's a game that's set in a billion years one billion years <laughs> into the future um, in, in what they call the ninth age. There have been nine ages of civilizations on the planet Earth. Um, pretty innovative in the fact that a billion years is a long time. Mm. Um, and even though there are still humans on the planet, they have been changed in a lot of strange and weird ways. I mean, you've got mutant people, you've got people with nano you know, parts and mechanical parts, and you've got at least two alien civilizations that have been on Earth um, for long periods of time. So are we we super sci-fi, or are we post-apocalyptic, or...? You know, it's a little bit of both. Um, People are not ignorant. I mean, the average, uh, as far as society structure goes, it's like medieval, as far as... Because there are basically kingdoms, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. But yet there's all of this various technology from the last billion years laying about. Um, and so uh, people aren't necessarily ignorant. I mean, they know the Earth goes around the sun. You know, they know basic science and things like that. But um, but the technology, they don't know how to use most of it. And so you have this group called the Aeon Priests, um, led by a character called the Amber Pope, which I think is a really cool name. Mm-hmm. Um uh, who are sort of the guardians and and discoverers of this technology, and uh, they they go out and find it. It's almost like a cult of technology, and uh, and so the players, you know, they don't have to be working towards those goals. They can be working towards any goals, but um, some of the missions, you know, 
they might go on for the uh, Aeon priests and stuff like that. And uh, but there's all kinds of technology. It's uh, and it's all incorporated. It's you almost breathe it, if you will. Um, in fact, there's a storm called the Iron Wind that's made up of nanoparticles. That if you get caught in the Iron Storm, it can like like totally remake who you are. Hmm. It's just it. There are some wild concepts in Numenera. Um, and it is, it is like I said, way out there. So I would, it, it's like super science mixed with gamma world mixed with a post-apocalyptic type setting. So it, um, and does it have a, a like a core D20 system or? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Which I'm cores, not surprised that because Monty Cook helped yeah. design the original D20 system. Right. At its core is the D20. There are a couple other dice that you can roll for different things. Um, but for the most part, yeah, it's all D20. One final interesting note and I'll get off of Numenera. You're fine. But. Um, it's, uh, the players roll all the dice. Hmm. The DM does not roll any dice. Um, when the players attack, they of course roll to see if they hit, but if the monsters attack, the players roll to see if they defend. That's cool. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's sort of, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how it works as far as, uh, narrative and things like that and, and game flow, because the idea behind that, I think, is that the DM can focus on describing the action and things going on without having to stop and roll dice and do number mm-hmm. computations and things like that. The players are doing it all. So, you know, all the DM's really having to ask is what you roll and, you know, and, and matching it with what he's got on, on his side of the screen. So um, I'm actually, one of the exciting things for me is, you know, I've talked about um, Mist and uh, Riven and Uru before on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uru actually matches Numenera much closer than anything else ever has as far as game systems go. Um, in the way that the Dunny use technology, um, it's bizarre enough and strange enough um, and has just a, enough mystical quality to it, even though it's science, that it fits really well. So I'm thinking about the opening scene in the game of Uru and using that as a, a short mini campaign. So, hey, that's my time. That's your time. So right, that'll well, be things I'm coming up in the future. Cool. Can, can, can I talk about Numenera a little bit? It's your time. Sure. You can talk about whatever you want. Start. All right. I'm going to start by just capital, you know, playing off that. One of the interesting things about Numenera is you the, the DM sets the, the difficulty for everything, and you're almost always rolling against the difficulty. Mm-hmm. And players actually can alter the difficulty score up or down rather than adding modifiers to their roll. So the only modifiers to the 20 roll are plus one or plus two, and everything else moves the difficulty up or down a notch. So it's actually, it reminded me of Thacko, um, which which I thought was pretty interesting. I haven't played it. I I have it, and I've read it, and um, we have a local convention called DC Game Day, and I'll be uh, playing it there. Uh, This morning, I was actually working on my Numenera character. Uh, So it it looks pretty cool. And I had a chance to talk to Bruce Cordell at um, Mm -hmm. Gen Con, who... At Gen Con was announced is working with Monty Cook on Numenera stuff. That's he, right. he left he left Wizards of the Coast and and he was there forever. And he now is working with Monty Cook. But he he actually said something that you mentioned, which is that one of the reasons he's excited about Numenera is it actually feels like a serious version of Gamma World, and and that really is a good advertisement for me because I loved Gamma World except for the fact that there was such zany stuff in it. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to playing it. Um. And I, I, I like very much what I've seen so far. Yeah, agreed, hundred percent. Cool. I look forward uh, to, to you guys playing it and telling us how it goes. Yeah. Uh, so I've been playing Thirteenth Age. 
uh, the last couple of sessions. We've been playing a lot of D&D next. Then we had our Pathfinder campaign. Uh, we ended that before Gen Con. And then after Gen Con, uh, I started running 13th Age for my group. And we decided on, you know, as a group, we decided that 13th Age is what we were going to spend some time on because they're kind of between D&D Next playtests currently. Um, Watsi announced that the next playtest that goes out publicly will be the final public playtest. Right. And after that, they're going to work with the friends and family group to test specific things. And they're going to... Um, uh, you know, and just refine refine what they've got, refine based on the feedback that they've got. So we thought, well, let's not get involved in a D&D Next game right now. Let's wait till the next playtest is out, and then we'll be kind of in the final straw, and then we will playtest it. And you'll be stable, relatively stable, yeah. Yeah, right. Well, and beyond that, we'll be able to offer, hopefully, feedback that is more relevant sure. to what they're currently looking at. And we're in the friends and family, so we'd probably be able to test some other stuff. Sure. But we thought, in the, in the meantime, why don't we play some 13th Age? Um, 13th Age is a D20... Uh, a D20 based game done by Robert Hensu and Jonathan Tweet. Uh, Robert Hensu was one of the designers of 4th edition and Jonathan Tweet was one of the designers of 3rd edition. They're good friends and you can tell it very clearly in the text of the book. Um, and they wrote it as their love letter to D&D. And uh, my group likes it very much. Um, it is a, it feels like a refinement of 4th edition. It has a lot of you know, clearly a lot of things that, that feel like 4th edition. There are things like powers. Mm -hmm. uh, characters are heavily empowered. Even first level characters are heavily empowered to, to survive well in the world. It's got a healing surge-like system. Uh, clerics can heal as minor actions. You know, a lot of stuff that we're used to seeing in 4th edition. And funny, stuff that we're seeing in 4th edition that we're not seeing in D&D Next. Mm -hmm. So I actually think that 13th Age has a good place in the you know in the in the future of RPGs because it has this kind of clear place between um, fourth edition D and D next and 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 other systems. Sure, Mike. If I can interrupt real quick, yeah. I've heard the comparison made that um, three point five is to Pathfinder what fourth edition is to Thirteenth Age. I I would not make that comparison. You wouldn't. Okay. No, and because Pathfinder. Having played 3.5 and Pathfinder, they are much closer together than 13th Age is to 4e. And, okay. pa and Pathfinder is, is just as complex, if not more so, yeah. than, than 3.5 yeah. is. And, and, and 13th, 13th Age, Age is simpler. much simpler. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So there, there's also there's also you know some will argue it's not really compatible, but there's some general compatibility level between 3.5 and Pathfinder, mm -hmm. and there's there's nothing even close. In, 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 you know, there are many things that are similar, but they're not the same. So, like, there's okay. no, you know, they don't have fort reflex and will, for example. They have mental defense and physical defense. Mm. Um, there's only 10 levels of play, but those 10 levels span what is the equivalent of about 25 levels in fourth edition. Right. So, a level 10 PC is kind of the equivalent of a level maybe 22 or 23 character in fourth edition. Yeah. Um, it, scales you know, the math the math skills scales with level so if you're a fifth level character you're going to have you know plus five onto everything over a first level character and you're going to have five dice worth of damage if you're a melee striker so you know it's it's interesting to watch melee damage go up a lot yeah if, if i uh, end up going back and doing my doing um my eberron fourth edition campaign concept at some point i'm stealing the escalation die idea from yeah 13th age as well to see if it helps uh speed up combat as well 
Yeah, so one of the interesting things about 13th Age is that the book itself is almost like an unearthed arcana. It's got a lot of ideas that you can directly steal and put into your other game, mm-hmm. into other games. Um, and and the, the other big difference between 13th Age and, and previous versions of D&D and other, and other systems is this, is this idea known as the icons. Um, the icons are connections between the main characters of your campaign world and the PCs. And the main characters are your, your Gandalf, your Drizzt, your Sauron, your, you know, Lord of Blades. You know, whatever the big characters are in the campaign world are the icons of that campaign world. So they're not gods. They're, they're actual physical mortal beings. But they're the main drivers of, of the story. You know, if you're going to use a dungeon world comparison, they're the fronts. You know, they're the things that are moving the world in, in directions. And... Your character has relationships with these, maybe not directly, but they, they have like reputations, you know, the, uh, almost like a, a MMO style reputation system where y- you might have a conflicted relationship with the Dwarf Lord or a positive relationship with the Dragon Emperor or a negative relationship with, with, the, um, uh, with the Orc Lord. Mm-hmm. And you assign points to them and each point you get three points total and you assign a point to your relationship and you can assign multiple points if you want so you can have all three with one icon if you want and then at the beginning of the game you roll to see whether or not something in that game is going to happen based on that relationship hmm. so if you are let's say you've got three points let's say you're you're all about the dragon emperor you know you're a you're a, a key follower of the dragon emperor and you have all three points of Dragon Emperor. You roll, and if you roll a five, you have a there's a there's a complication with your relationship with the Dragon Emperor that are, that's going to occur in the next game session. Or if you roll a six, then there's a direct benefit from your relationship. And from a DM perspective, that is a really hard thing to yeah. do. It's it's a, it's cool, and it it, it kind of fits the lazy dungeon master style because I have no idea what icons they're going to roll, and therefore I don't really know how to guide the story from session to session. Um, you know, so I, there's no prep I can do, which is nice. But boy, when they roll it and you're like, okay, so I have five players, each of them are rolling three D six. And, you know, if they roll five or six, that's going to have some kind of effect on the game session. And I run abbreviated game sessions. My sessions are only about two and a half hours long. So that doesn't give me a lot of room to say like, wow, if I've got three different people that all rolled and I've got to figure out how these three threads are going to occur. Yeah. You know, I have to come up with something. And I've been struggling a lot with that. I ran two games so far. And in both games, the first game was, the beginning of the game was a disaster because I just, I didn't even know where to start. And I was kind of like, you're all in a bar. And, you know, it, it ended up working out and and the story got moving. And then the next session, I think, worked a little better where I said like, you know, they're going to go into this room. I'm not going to define the features of the room. I'm going to wait until they roll their icon relationships. And if they roll depending on the icon relationship they roll, is going to define what the features of the room are. So if they roll for the Orc Lord, this room is going to be filled with Orc Lord stuff. Mm-hmm. If they roll with the Dwarf Lord, it's going to be a Dwarven room. You know, and, and that, that kind of, you know... You could also house rule a limitation on that as well, I think. You know, you could say, okay, everybody, you know, rolled your relationship thing and see how many of you get get it. But then... Once you figure out that okay, three people roll that their relationship's going to come up. Now let's random, randomly determine, or or maybe not randomly, but we'll determine which one of you actually has something happen. You know, and just have one of these big things come up each session instead of trying to squeeze everything into, yeah. into every two hours. Sure. Session. Yeah. There, there's a million ways to house rule it. Actually, there's lots of different things, ways to do it. I'm just trying to do it the way the book sure. intends if, at first, just to you know, so that I get an idea, and then I'll start to tweak it 
you know, as I go. And so, and it has worked. Like, the last game, it worked pretty well. I knew there was going to be an NPC in the room that was going to be wounded. I didn't know who they would be allied with. And when they rolled, one of the person rolled Elf, Elf Queen as their relationship, and it was a five, a complication, you know, a complication with the Elf Queen. So that became a person who was part of the, you know, suddenly became an elf who was tied to the Elf Queen and didn't particularly like the PC, you know, so she said it was clear that they both support the Elf Queen, but she didn't like each other, and she ended up, you know, doing it. But, like, the easy way is I always loved, like, the Skyrim idea, which is, like, you walk into a town and a random NPC runs up to you and says, on behalf of, insert mm -hmm. icon here, I want to give you this bag full of potions, you know, and then runs off again. <laughs> so you, you can do it, like, a lot of easy things. And, and, and the game says, like, there's lots of different ways to do it. From a mini campaign standpoint, you can actually refine the list of icons. So you could say like, okay, everybody, we're going to make our characters and you can make whatever you want. We're going to stick to these six of the 13 icons. We're going to have two good ones, two shady ones, and two bad ones. And you can only have positive, you know, you can only, you can have positive or conflicted with the good ones. You can have conflicted or negative with the bad ones. And you can have whatever you want with the middle ones. But those are the only six. And that way, when I'm designing the game... I only have to worry about those six. You know, they became the drivers. And if from a mini campaign standpoint, you can say like, we're going to pick these six for this mini campaign. And then after that one's done, we're going to pick these six. And then we're going to pick these six. And that way you can shape the flavor of the overall game. Like you could have a very heavily fey influenced game if you stick with the Elf Queen, the High Druid, the Prince of Shadows, you know, mm -hmm. the Orc Lord and, you know, whoever. Um, or you could say we're going to have a very kind of imperial focused game of, of big government sort of stuff. So we're going to have the Dragon Emperor and we're going to have the Crusader and we're going to have the, you know, whomever, the Great Gold Worm and the three. So there's a lot of possibility in that. But it's a but, you know, I mean, I've run over a thousand D&D &D games and it was hard. It was a real struggle for me to get this sure. to get this to work in the same Mike, way that. The, uh, sorry to interrupt, but are yeah. the. Uh, um what did you not icons? i got the word icons are those predetermined so in 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 this book if you play just with 13th age they have 13 icons that are in the book okay. and they're all they're all relatively generic sort of bad or sort of guys so right. the dragon emperor is your stereotypical human ruler the great yeah, gold I... worm is your your you know your big gold dragon uh, the right. Lich King is, you know, they're all very descriptive in their titles, and it's very clear to people what they would be. But the the game is intended that you could replace those with anything you want. So you could mm -hmm. take the Neverwinter campaign book from 4th edition mm -hmm. and take all those major factions that are in Neverwinter and make those your icons. Yeah, the, okay. whole, the whole thing, as you're describing it, in my head, it speaks very well to, like, Eberron. Yeah. You know, again, well, yeah, you, you, could have, you could have the Lord of Blades. You could have the yeah. head of the, the Church of the Silver Flame. You could have the, the heads of the different uh, Dragonmart houses. Right, yeah. Dark Sun. It works just as well. You yeah. can take all the dragon, the dragon emperors from Dark Sun, or the the god dragon kings, sorcerer kings, sorcerer kings. You could take all them from Dark Sun, plus all of the other non sorcerer king players. You know, players as in major major yeah. influencers in the world. Forgotten Realms, just as easy. You could have all you know all the different factions. Yeah, of Forgotten I mean, so although any, in the realms, I think you'd has... have to narrow it down because the realms, if you did the whole world, you'd have way more than it would be. Well, it depends, for. right? Like if in, if you open you know in the Neverwinter campaign book, there's actually I forget like eight major factions. Right. So yeah, and narrow it down to one region. Then I think you're good. Yeah, but or you could say if it's going to be a big scoped game. And then I talked to some people about like what if you have multiple tiers? Would you want to change your? Yeah, a friend of mine who's in my my regular game. Um, you know, says if you're if you have multiple tiers, do you want to change the icons out? So like, you know, when you go from kind of your local scale to your global scale to your planar scale, your your icon sets might change. 
Sure. And oh, I see what you're saying. Go. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's you know that what it means for Thirteenth Age is Thirteenth Age has you know a good solid big pile of mechanics that that are fun for players. It's it's great to run as a as a DM. I love the monsters run really well. There's a lot of swingy kind of fun stuff. It's very fast. Combat is really quick. Um, it doesn't. It uses an abstract movement system of you know engage nearby and far instead of you know numbers of squares and feet. Mm-hmm. And that means. And but you can still use minis and maps and everything like that. You just don't care about squares. And I set up some pretty. You know, I figured I was gonna. You know, I I, I was gonna struggle with the rules. So to make up for that, I would make a really big detailed dwarven forge setup so that they would be you know dazzled by scenery to make up for a lack of understanding the rules hey, and it shiny. works <laughs> yeah right Ooh, shiny right so i made like this seven story high tower you know with wow levels and everything it was huge and um and that, they love that i got to use it for two game sessions and they love that again i had no idea any of the background of the tower and i kind of had to make it up as we went um but it was really quick like it was fun to use these because you just like are those guys close? And you say, yeah. And the guy would just move his mini close. You know, it goes, okay, I go from close to engage. And it, it, it meant that you can, though you can play very easily theater of the mind, um, it's very easy to play with maps and minis as well because it just becomes free. Like where you can just move, you can kind of move wherever you want. You don't really care. You know, when one guy said, is that guy close? I said, yeah. And he like moved his guy all the way past these things and up the stairs. I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, like we don't have to, go to double movement on going upstairs or how did you get over the table or any nonsense like that, okay. you know, cause that's not really fun. And he would say like, you know, I, I, I hop up on the table and run up the stairs and, and engage him. Sure. Absolutely. And it works really well. So I've been having a lot of fun with that. It is a big struggle to, to, to understand how to use the icons and how to use them from game to game. And I'm, I'm probably going to be tweaking that as we go, but I'm having a really good time. And I, I love for 13th age. I think it's, it's a fantastic system and I highly recommend it. Cool. And before we go on to our last conversation, I want to remind people to help support the show by shopping at D&D Classics to buy your D&D PDFs and shopping at Amazon. And as long as you get to those through the TomeShow.com's links, then we get some credit for that. So go enjoy your gaming stuff and help us out at the same time. All right. So we got an email. Actually, we got two emails from Steel Steve. And I think Steel Steve was the email that I got. Um, before the last recording and then couldn't remember or couldn't find it um, that we discussed on the air. Well, discussed anyway that we couldn't find it. But we have it now. So we have an email from Steel Steve and he gives us a little bit of background and says, uh, what, would I, what I would like to know is how is the best way to include traps and puzzles in your games? It seems that puzzles and traps are a bit harder to make up on the fly than monster stat blocks in 4E. Right now, the way I see traps designed for 4E is rather like a combat or a skill challenge, and it doesn't excite me as much as the way other systems do it. That said, just some general information about traps in any game would be a lot of, would help a lot since I run a lot of one-shots of different systems as well. Thanks for any help. Sincerely, Steel Steve. Who's got an idea? How do we run traps and puzzles Without it becoming well, mechanical skill challenging sorts of things. I, of Mike, course, want, have lots of ideas. You want to go first or you want me to? Uh, why don't you go first? Okay. Um, well, let's take it. There's two different things here. Traps are definitely different than puzzles. And um, I've had some ex- good experience with both. So traps, um, quite frankly, in 4E, a trap is a power. And if you can, um, if you can work with powers in 4E... You can 
um, you can design a trap, and the trap is what the power does. Um, it's got to make sense for the trap. Um, you know, you don't have a pit trap that sprays you with acid, or maybe you do. But that sounds <laughs> the, awesome. Yeah, doesn't it? Right. Um, but it's but like you a get really what I bad car wash. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> but you get what I mean. In other words, you know, it's basically a power. You know, you have. Um, you know the number it needs to hit. You have the dam- the amount of damage it does, and those are all scalable by, um, uh, you know, by the level. And so you want something um, fairly appropriate. And of course, the level of the power, you know, depending upon how many traps you have, can mix with combat encounters to um, to boost those or to add a little bit of difficulty. I know Mike is uh, not still some of Mike's thunder, but I know he has used a lot of that in his um, encounters. Uh, in his own games, which he's talked about on this very podcast. Um, so traps are really, they're, yeah, they're not exciting in 4E. I mean, I mean, as far, you can make them that way. Uh, you're going to have to, you know, be forgiving as far as uh, mechanics sometimes if you want it to be more, uh, what sort I want to use, organic. If you want the traps to be like more organic, involved in the scenery and things like that, um, otherwise, they're, they're an element of the game, and so you know that's going to happen. That's my opinion. You know, um, puzzles, on the other hand, having run games based on things like Myst, <laughs> um, which are very puzzle centric, I know things that you sh- can do in D anD D with puzzles, and things that you shouldn't. <laughs> and um, one of the things that you shouldn't do is unless you have an extremely graphic or visually oriented game with lots of props and lots of scenery and lots of things like that that is constantly being scanned by the players don't use subtle puzzles don't use things that because they're not going to care <laughs> particularly in a 4 year game which is designed to be built from encounter to encounter um, because it's not that organic um, your best puzzles are very straightforward you know, a wall with a code on it that they can solve. Um, a, a quest that they need to find, you know, six things and and put them in a box. <laughs> and, you know, and that solves the puzzle and opens the door or whatever. The puzzles should be pretty straightforward, um, particularly for E. Again, because it's, you know, the characters are, are going to be thinking, what can I do to get past this encounter? And it won't be as organic as it, as it maybe could be. Um uh, I've tried the subtle puzzles where the puzzles are all built into the environment um, and like they are in Mist or in Riven and boy, it was a big disaster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so don't do that. <laughs> At here, least for your 4E game. <laughs> here's where so. I think you can you can build up the the story and and give the the impression of subtlety though um, because and, and this is also my answer to the issue of um, puzzles challenge players, not characters, right? Right, and, and that's and that's a that's, com- that's a common issue. That's exactly uh, true. And so here's what I've done that that has gone really well for me is that you you know when you have the puzzle that is the code on the wall for the players to solve, that code is mired and built into the setting. Okay, so it's it's not just moving random symbols around; it's it's interpreting the meanings of archaic uh, holy symbols. Which the the players may not know, but the characters can then roll the dice to interpret what those symbols mean, so that then the players can 
can decode the puzzle. You know what I mean? So then you've got an element of both the player and the character are doing something, and you're miring it in the story, and it suddenly makes it feel a little more subtle because you had to figure something out before you could actually solve the puzzle. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's right. And, I, and I've, had good, I've had good luck with that. Mike? So I've, I've got a, a couple of the thoughts. I wrote an article on Sly Flourish called Lazy Traps that came from, I think that might have come from this fella. Um, I quoted him. I should find, I should look it up. Uh, with your noisy keyboard? With my noisy keyboard. Uh, yeah, so was, I wrote an article specifically about this question of how do you, how do you create how do you create lazy traps? And it really comes down to, you know, like most, most game systems, 4E has it and many systems have like a, a generic like damage per level chart or attack bonus per level chart. 13th Age has it and a lot of others. Um, Pathfinder doesn't really have it, but you can kind of figure it out. And uh, if you have the math, if you know like what your attack score is and what the damage is, then you can kind of flavor a trap however you want and just throw that math on top of it. Um, and there's, there's lots of, you know, tons of different, you know, flavor that you can get. There's a lot of different random traps that you can look up on, online. And I always like the idea of mixing two traps together. So the idea of a pit trap that sprays acid on you on the way down, I think is really cool. Um, <laughs> you know, I was like the, the kobold, you know, pit trap with fire, fire pots on the other side. So like you'd jump over the pit and when you landed, fire pots would swing at your head, hit you with the fire, you're soaked in burning oil, and then you fall in the pit trap that you just jumped over. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, stacking traps together, I think, could be a lot of fun, and it breaks through the 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 kind of you know knowledge that all the players have of what a trap can do. Just tie two of them together, and now they, that's a totally unique trap they've never seen before. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I agree with everything that Randall was saying about traps, um, and I, I just tend to think of them more like there's they're something that you want to throw in whenever you feel like it. I always think like if you're going through dungeons or you're going through you know, caves that somebody runs, you're going to run into traps and they don't have to be an encounter in 4E. I think 4E does handle them like encounters. They don't have to be. You can have pretty simple traps that, you know, where there's something for them to kind of either figure out or skill their way past. And if they do, then they succeed. And if they don't, then they get hit with something that, you know, hits them and takes away some hit points and forces them to use a healing surge. Um, it's funny that in 13th Age, they hand wave traps pretty big. They, they, they really kind of say like traps are kind of boring. And so here, you know, you can... Here's some real generic rules for how you can throw traps in, but generally speaking, you don't get experience for them, and they don't—they're not like monsters, you know. Or you, 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 more important is fighting monsters, and I can see their point, but I kind of like traps. Um, puzzles. I think there's a couple of good, and I've, I've always struggled with like creating good models for puzzles that you can reuse. Um, my most, my my the one I I like the most right now is the 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 typical ciphers, you know, replacement ciphers where you basically take a bunch of letters and you replace them with glyphs or something else, but you do so consistently so that an A, you know, looks like a particular type of squiggly and a B looks like some other kind of squiggly. And you make sure to put the spaces in place so that people know the size of the words. And if you give them enough text, then smart people can go through and actually figure out like, okay, this is the most common one, so that's probably an E. And then if this is an E, then those two words are probably the... And that means I have the T and the H. And then if I put the T's in and all the spots that the T's are, then I can start to figure out what the other words are. And what they eventually build is a primer. They, like if you, if you give them a big long message that's done with these glyphs and they figure out that long message, then you can start putting in single words in different places throughout the rest of your adventure that they can pull out the primer and decode. And it makes them feel like they're decoding an ancient language or they're figuring out the runes of this thing. 
and and you know and it it, it kind of gets them to always go like oh there's that secret word again somebody who's got the primer you know and somebody will pull it out and they'll figure it out and it makes them feel like they're actually doing something you can put that in any game system you know there's no mechanics to it um and it's something that that usually somebody at a gaming table is going to be able to figure out pretty easily because you know it's like a really really weak form of 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 a cipher um another puzzle that i like a lot is the game mastermind Uh, mastermind is a really simple decoding you know sort of decoding game and if you reduce the number it's all based on i'm not gonna you you can all go google it and figure it out but you can actually position basically yes color and position and you can reduce the number of positions and you can reduce the number of colors to make it even easier if you have if you want a real quick one um, if you do a Google search for Sly Flourish Mastermind Trap, you'll, you'll see, or Mastermind, you'll see that I wrote an article about this as well, including some PDF templates so that you can add like a 3x3 three three or a 4x4. Four four. And they can act sort of like skill challenges. You know, 4x4s four four take a lot longer to do. 3x3s three are a little quick. But that way you could have like a, 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 you know, if you want to mix your trap and your puzzle, you could have this flaming statue in the middle of a room that's, you know, spitting fire in a, in a circle and somebody can run up and deactivate it by doing the mastermind puzzle while other people are fighting, you know, flame archons that are appearing in the room at the same time. And that way you can have a really kind of fun dynamic encounter with a lot of different pieces that include physical puzzles that players can figure out, mechanical things where people can roll skill checks and monsters where they can do combat. Um, but I think kind of finding those puzzle templates, you know, these puzzle ideas that you can reuse multiple times are a good, a good tool to have in a toolkit. Cool. Yep. Well, I don't have anything to add, and we are at an hour, so we're going to call it good. I hope Excellent. that I hope that helps out Steel Steve. And uh, keep sending your questions. The Tome Show at gmail.com is my email address, and I forward all those on to the other two guys so we can discuss them. And we record monthly. We're a little late in this month, but uh, that just means it'll be less time between this session, uh, this recording, and the next one, right? That's right. Yep. All right. Well, that's all I got. Anybody else got anything else to say? Nope. Good to go. Have a great weekend. All right. Everybody say bye-bye. Enjoy your games. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.